How can a look at the past provide a powerful reckoning for the present? How does a playwright wrestle with form to explore shifting constructs of time and place? I'm Dino Dimitriadis and welcome to Staging the Nation. We would like to acknowledge the Darug people where we record this podcast today, and we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. As we stand in this complicated present, we shine a light on some Australian writers that have grappled with the big questions of who we are as a nation and the complexity of presenting marginalised and underrepresented experiences. In this episode in the series, I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking with Dylan Vandenberg about his brilliant play, Milk. On the precipice of something life-changing, a young Palawa man plunges into an exploration of self and country. Carried with the winds of a metaphysical Flinders Island, the land of his mob and the place where it all happened, he's drawn back to the dawn of colonisation. To a woman who bore the brunt of the oppressor's violence, and then forward to her granddaughter who buried the truth as means of survival. Stirring up stories together with parts both achingly sad and unexpectedly funny, what unfolds reveals by slow degrees painful but important truths. Dylan is a Palawa writer, performer with family connections to the Bass Strait Islands and the northeast of Tasmania. Recently, his play Way Back When won the Griffin Award, was highly commended for the Max Afford Award and was shortlisted for the Patrick White Playwrights Award and the Queen La- Queensland Premier's Drama Award. Wowzers. Uh, other writing for performance includes Milk, which we're discussing today and is on at the Street Theatre, which was shortlisted for the Rodney Seaborn Playwrights Prize. The Camel and Blue, a misery play. In 2019, Dylan was selected to participate in Playwriting Australia's Masterclass with Patricia Cornelius. He's currently adapting a new Australian musical, Dot and the Kangaroo, with Liz Hobart and Bryce Halliday. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you. It's a privilege to be chatting on Darrow Country with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. And what I didn't mention in that little wonderful intro, which is your latest congratulations, for having recently won the New South Wales Premier Literary Award for Milk. That's right. That was fantastic. Um, that was last week, this week? Uh, on Monday. On Monday, perfect. So what I'm still I, on a high. <laughs> what was it like to be recognised with that award? Uh, incredible, you know, um, just to be shortlisted amongst such remarkable playwrights and such vital plays um, was, was enough for me, really. Uh, but to win is something else, you know, and particularly, you know, to, to win an award named after Nick Enright, one of the mm. country's great writers, um, is, is also something that's deeply satisfying. Um, and, and just that the fact that this play, which is so deeply personal um, and, and really delves into um, my personal family history, but also Tasmanian Aboriginal history more broadly, um, is, is also um, pretty exciting, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so fantastic. Did they put on a, a do for you or was that a it's sort of... Online, it's one oh. of those online things. Um. <laughs> Soon we will return. I hope. We will return. Uh, fantastic. Congratulations. It's so, it's so great. I'd like to start by asking you a question that I've asked every single playwright who has sat in that chair over the course of this series, which is, I'm so interested in that moment when a playwright decides that an idea is a play. What was that moment for Milk? 
Um, it was probably a series of moments and I can probably pinpoint uh, a period of time mm. in which it, it kind of emerged. But I was, I was working as an actor five or six years ago um, and it's probably an overstatement. I was trying to work as an actor <laughs> five or six years ago uh, and I hadn't written anything. Um, I thought that you had to be a genius to be a playwright. You know, I thought you had to be Joanna Murray Smith or Wesley Enoch or Tom Stoppard or someone. Um, and I was at this point in my vague acting career where I just wasn't finding or even hearing about roles that were representative of my experience as a, as a fair-skinned black fella. Um, and at the very same time, I felt like I was constantly justifying or, or not so much justifying, but constantly having to, to prove my background and existence and heritage um, and, and come up with evidence that, that my skin wasn't providing. Um, and so I was walking home after the theatre one night and overheard a conversation during this period. And um, people were talking about passing, uh, passing as white. Um, and they talked about having milky skin um, and this idea of, of, of a play called Milk just suddenly sprung into my head. I hadn't written anything at this point and thought, this is going to be a one-person show, I'm going to write it one day. Um, and um, it's gone through so many iterations over the last couple of years uh, and we've finally landed here. Amazing. So where did you start? What's, what's your process for opening up a play? I wish I had a process. Mm. <laughs> I really do. Um, I often just start with one image and or, or a word or uh, an idea. And it, this one was was milk. And it was mm. to kind of have it be around my experience um, and, and wanting to be seen and also wanting to contribute to a conversation around um, Palawa people, the Tasmanian Aboriginal people, um, and the fact that we constantly have to fight um, to say that we are still here. Um, so it kind of sprung from that and that's kind of um, propelled me forward over the, the through the writing process um, but I, I make a lot of false starts I think mm. um, as I said I thought this play would be a one-person show uh, and then I started writing about you know what of my ancestors and I started writing about um, you know a combination of my, my grandparents and then eventually I thought um, they all need to be told and I'm too lazy to write three plays <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I just combine them into one yeah <laughs> Oh, but you do, yeah, but but I think, it will, and we'll unpack this, I, I think part of the genius of the play is how you've combined it into one. It's really interesting because you're you're the first playwright in this chair who uh, I, I haven't known before. We haven't really connected before this conversation. And it's so thrilling to get to know someone through their writing. Um, and and there's so much about this play that I'd love to, I'd love to jump in with you. Can you tell us a little bit about, so, so the, the listeners who might not have read the play, uh, it centres around three characters, um, A, B and C. They're so much more than three characters and if you read the play you'll know what I mean. They take on different forms and constructs. But can you tell me a little bit about these people in this in this world? Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, they're, they're three ancestors um, and they're kind of converging in a metaphysical space um, and speaking across time. Um, character A is an older Aboriginal woman. Um, we kind of, um, we, we learn that she experienced first contact um, and um, she's kind of going through a process of grieving through the play. Character B is an Aboriginal woman from the 1960s in Tasmania um, and she has kind of had to... Um, had to, in, in some ways, in order to survive, has had to kind of um, sacrifice her connection to country and culture um, to, to ensure a, a good life for herself and her children in mainland Tasmania after her family were able to, to, to leave Flinders Island. Uh, and character C is, is a young, fair-skinned Aboriginal man um, from, the, from the present day. And each of them are, are either dealing with the, the very um, initial impacts of colonisation um, or, the, or the ripples and reverberations of that um, across the last couple of hundred years. 
and without sort of giving away the whole play, what what is the what is their relationship to each other, and and what were you looking to explore in that relationship? Yeah, so um, they are ancestors. Um, you know, C is a young man. Character B is his grandmother. Character um, A is his great great grandmother. Um, um, but each of them are representative of a generation and, and not not a particular person, of course. Um, and they. Um, they kind of have this opportunity to talk about things that I will never get to talk to my ancestors about um, and and really unpack why we do the things we do um, in, to, in order to survive out of necessity um, and also, you know, what colonisation meant um, and not just in terms of, of, of the obvious things but uh, in terms of, the, you know, those, um, those things that you just can't quite shake that mm. will always be there. And, and I really got a sense of continuous colonisation, ongoing colonisation colonization as you, as you kind of go through the generations. Definitely, definitely. You know, it's, it's not over. And character C really goes through this process of, of having to personally reconcile. You know, mm. he, he comes from this incredible um, legacy of resilience on one side, but on the other side he is descendant from the coloniser. And so he goes through this process of, of figuring out whether the stories of, of these women, these black women, belong to him and whether he has a right to tell them, um, given, given that, that duality. Mm. It was so interesting to me to see how this, essentially this piece plays out as, as a generational conversation. I mean, it, it moves, it shifts through, uh, through, I wouldn't even call them scenes, fragments of, of stage time. Um, why was it important for you, though, to, to really grapple with with generational conversation? Um, I think I think it's something that a lot of mob have to do. Um, uh, you know, I, I once heard an elder talk about the fact that as as mobs, we need to reconcile within ourselves mm. before we can then contribute to the broader reconciliation movement to which everyone should be contributing, Indigenous or not. Um, but for me, it was really about trying to understand um, the generations that have come before me. You know, I'm in a privileged position where I can look back at the past, and and I think that is a privilege that perhaps my 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 grandparents didn't have. You know, when when you're really worried about getting food on the table and paying the bills? You know, do you have time to kind of explore your identity and, and what it means? Um, um, and so, yeah, and, and also wanting to talk back uh, and give life to my ancestors who didn't have an opportunity to speak. Um, there's, there is a lot of mentions of, of my family in white recorded history and diary mm. entries and so on from the time. Uh, and so our understanding of them, a wide understanding of them is, is through that lens. And I really wanted to, um, to, to give them a, a voice through me um, that was um, informed by some of that stuff, but, but brought something different to it, I guess. Mm. Have you always had an interest in your, in your family lineage? Um, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know, I, I think... For for us in Tassie, um, and and for me in particular, you know, I often often people will say, "Well, you don't look Aboriginal," um, and sometimes you start to believe them and start to think that mm. maybe maybe um, they they know something about you that you don't. Uh, and so I found for a long time I was really clinging to these facts, these things that I knew about myself and where I came from, um, 
and I think it was a pretty dogged fascination <laughs> for a while. Uh, and the process of writing this play was um, a way of, of saying, as I was saying earlier, that, that I'm still here, that we are still here, and kind of, I think, putting to bed that obsession with, <laughs> with the past. Mm. Yeah, there's some extraordinary conversations between, uh, I mean, between everybody in the play, but, but, but I was struck by some between A and C when you, you really have that, that distance between the characters. Um, and, and some of the uh, some of the, the things that they were debating at times or, or trying to come to with their perspectives, was it easy to imagine those conversations? Are they the, the things that Milk deals with? Are they things that you've been wrestling for a while? Or when you started writing the play, did you really kind of discover a lot as you were unpacking where each of those ancestors was? I guess the standpoint they had in their times. Yeah, um, I think there was there was. A little bit of both. I think some of it was imagined. There were things that I wished that I knew, and um, and and things that I wished that I that I could ask. Um, but a lot of it was informed by, by research and chatting with family as well. Um, and I was really amazed, I think, through the writing process at the variety and the richness and the vibrancy of, of mm. all of these different perspectives. Um, and then you kind of have the responsibility of, of kind of holding on to them and, and, and dotting them throughout, um, which was a really satisfying experience as well, um, because. I wanted to, you know, tell a, a story that is, is based in something quite personal, but, you know, um, I also have responsibility to community as well. Mm. Um, and, and that's something that I took very seriously um, while writing it. And so from the, the, those, those early kind of seeds of going, oh, that overhearing the, the milky conversation to this week accepting <laughs> the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, um, what, how long was that process of bringing this play into into its full realization that it is now? So yeah, five or six years ago was was the the initial seed, um, and then I didn't pick up a pen for maybe two or three years after after mm. that. Um, again, I thought playwrights had to be geniuses, and then I soon realised that they don't. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> normal people, <laughs> um, believe it or not. Uh, and um, I I just started writing a couple of scenes down and initially it was a one-person show and there is this great beautiful tradition in the Aboriginal theatre canon of, of one-person shows mm-hmm. and they're generally um, biographical and um, I started to want to write back to that in a way um, but then as I said there were too many different perspectives I wanted to capture um, and then it moved into a, a two-hander between C and A um, but then there was this this fascinating kind of 50 or 60 years where um, or a certain generation um, had to hide their heritage and identity. You know, if you were known as being from Flinders Island, you were called a half-caste. And so if you could pass as white, you would in order to, to have a good life. Um, and it just wasn't so long ago. Uh, and I really wanted to add, throw that into the, into the mix as well. Um, and then it's gone through a couple of developments with, with incredible mob uh, directors and dramaturgs, um, you know, last year we were supposed to go on, but instead mm. we had another development. And in a way, I think COVID was, was a blessing for this play because it really gave me the time and space to think about what I wanted to say. And of course, with our own Black Lives Matter revelation in Australia last year, um, I started to think about the place that, that any play that deals with colonisation, with, with issues of, of, um, of reconciliation um, and having to, being forced to hide yourself, um, I, I wanted to build um, it, that. Really influenced, I think, the, the current mm. iteration of the work. 
That's really fascinating. Did, did it change a lot on the back of the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, in some ways. I think initially I was writing for a black audience mm. um, and then after that I, I decided I wanted the play to be an invitation to Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia to actually have a conversation with each other around our pasts and what's in them um, and how we can all contribute to, to something. Um, so in terms of my intended audience, I think that really shift off the, off the back of that. Mm. How do you maintain that balance? You know, how, how, do you, how do you write a play that balances honouring community mm. um, and the integrity of community, but also um, acknowledging that, unfortunately, current constructs of audiences are predominantly white and Anglo? Um, and as you say, you, you also want the work to be an invitation for those. It's not about closing doors. How, how do you continuously juggle that balance? I find it quite difficult because I find it very easy to write for uh, a black audience. Mm. Um, however, I have been steeped my entire life, you know, through university in, in the Western theatrical tradition as well. So, um, and I kind of revel in being able to appropriate that form and combine it with, you know, with language and um, with dance and, and song and so on, um, which I do to some degree in Milk. Um, but I think it's about acknowledging that there are commonalities in the ways that we tell stories across cultures. Um, and I, I, I try to build in something for, for everyone, you know, um, this is a story particularly, you know, specifically for Palawa mob, but it's a story that, that could also resonate with, with other mobs from, from across the country as well. Um, and the fact that, that C is dealing with this, this hybrid identity, this culturally hybrid existence, um, I think allows, um, other audience members from different backgrounds uh, a way in as well. And it's funny, after one of our earlier developments, we had um, um, some feedback from people who, who from non-Indigenous backgrounds who said that um, it really made them think about their own pasts and histories and backgrounds. And, and someone was talking about um, their family from Malta and, and how, um, you know, some of that was hidden during, during a particular time in Australia's history. Um, and it was fascinating for me to realise that, that this is something that still happens and happens to lots of people and that there, there are threads that people can hold on to. That, I mean, that happened to me. I was, I was thinking about my Greek culture mm. and, and, and just thinking about the generational differences in conversation. Uh, and it's interesting you say Malta because in the first episode we chatted with Paul Capsis about Angela's Kitchen, again, wrestling with different generational approaches to things. And I think that's what you've done so beautifully by, I mean, obviously there are things very specific to the communities you're writing about in the work, but it, it, it is also, I was struck by how beautifully nuanced it was to the time that each person was experiencing their perspective from. Uh, it, it was really quite distinct. Um, I want to ask you about spirituality, and I, and, I, and I mean that in the most expansive sense of the word. I read you say something in an interview somewhere. Um, don't worry, it was brilliant. It sounded, it sounded brilliant. Uh, about how I I in many ways um, colonisation really eroded dreaming from the Palawa people and that in some ways your writing is a way of reclaiming or rediscovering dreaming. Uh, I'd love you to chat a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, well, yes, as you said, we, we lost so much um, of mm. our dreaming, of our culture, um, and, and what we have left is a testament to the resilience and um, resolve of, um, of, of a group of women who were removed um, and taken to the Bass Strait Islands. Um, but... Uh, 
that idea came from one of my aunties who works in the health space and she was um, on a work trip up at the top end and she was chatting with, with an elder up there um, uh, and kind of lamenting our loss of, of, um, of our dreaming. And this elder turned around and said to her, um, you can always get it back. You just have to go down to the beach and dance and it will come back to you. Um, and I've never forgotten that it stayed with me and I've always been encouraged by um, my family and this auntie in particular, to, to write back our dreaming, that it exists within me. Um, nothing I'm telling hasn't been told before. Um, and, and that um, there, there are things that we need to say in stories that, that we can conjure up um, that can add something um, and, and bring it back. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, you also see it, I think, in the, in the work with, with this connection to land. The land is such a and 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 elements of land, stone, water, but you know, is are so central to to the texture of milk. Um, wh- why was it important, and 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 how did you weave those sort of natural elements into into the universe of the play? It was important for me that the play was set on an island, this in the Bass Strait, um, um, because the the physical landscape there. Um, it, the thing about Flinders Island is that it's so strikingly beautiful, but yet um, so harsh. Um, the wind is 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 um, you know so strong that the, the grass kind of grows sideways. Um, that there are these kind of um, severe cliff faces and um, water lapping up again, smashing against the rocks. Um, and in some ways, that was representative of of, of the time of colonisation. That you know, under the guise of, um, what was it, conciliation, that they were taken to this place. Um, they looked quite beautiful, but in reality was was quite terrible. Um, and, you know, the other thing about Flinders Island is that for, for character A, for example, she was removed from country and taken to Flinders Island, so that wasn't her country at all. Therefore, it's quite an alien space for her. However, her ancestors and those who remained on the island, that became home. And so it's actually quite a complex relationship with Flinders Island. It's not my country, but it's where my great grandmother was um, was born and, and lived, and, um, and and still tells me stories about today. Um, and I wanted to capture a sense of that—that that something that was foreign became home um, and was kind of appropriated by the mob who who lived on from her. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, you feel like these—you uh, get a. The interesting thing about the play is you get such an interesting sense of the island and the and the uh, or this space and the texture of the land, and yet it also feels like the, these three people are the only inhabitants in this world that you've written. Um, it's such a liminal space as well, and uh, and I wonder, you know, one of the things that really struck me as well about the work is 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 how you wrestle with form. and and I know in some of your other writing that it's that form is something that you're quite interested in. What 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 excites you about playing with theatrical form? Um, mainly, I just never want to see a play around a dinner table again. Yeah, <laughs> um, please. Um, no, I I just <laughs> I relish in trying to tell stories in surprising ways, mm. um, and one day that'll make me very tedious. But <laughs> I think at at the moment um, I'm fascinated with. Um, the multitude of ways that we can convey an idea. Um, and I think it opens up, you know, if I'm, I'm trying to recapture my dreaming and, 
um, and and funnel some some stories through. Um, it just gives me more space to do that. You know, I think that whenever I'm writing a play, I ask myself, why is this a play and not a short story or a film? Um, and if you're not playing with form and it's not crossing time and space and and working at a hundred different planes then mm. it could just be on television <laughs> um and so i'm i'm constantly yeah. challenging myself um because i think that the theater has so much to offer us as an audience mm. um and if you don't take advantage of it then it's been a bit lazy <laughs> yeah <laughs> who are some of the playwrights who excite you they don't have to be formally inventive but um i always loved um Wesley Enoch, mm. Angela, um, Andrew James. Um, I'm also a big fan of the American playwrights. I love Sarah Rule and Paula Vogel. Um, bold, bold, bold. bold I, just, writers, I like yeah. people who know what they want to say, I think. Um, and not that I do, and I think that's why I admire them. Mm. <laughs> I think that they're so clear in, in what it is that they're, they're trying to do. Um, and I have, a, I have a thing about plays being beautiful to read um, mm. and... Uh, you know, we don't look at plays as being literature and in the sense we look at books and, and so on, um, which is a real shame because I think that there's so much you can get from reading a play. Stage directions can be beautiful um, and you can fill in the gaps with your mind and it's just as satisfying as reading a book. Um, and I think we, we diminish playwriting when we think about plays as being blueprints, purely blueprints for performance, because they are, absolutely. Um, but they can also exist in another way. And I think COVID made me think about that too. Um, I've read a lot of plays. I couldn't see them. Um, and if I could, they were online and, um, you know, that immediacy was, was, was missing. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited by, by playwrights who know what they're saying and who are committed to their plays being a joy to read and a joy to watch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, anyone who's listening to this and, and who hasn't read the play should read it because as well as being a wonderful wonderful dialogue there's so much poetry in the stage directions it's such a it's such a beautiful piece of writing uh, let's go back to form not i'm not ready to move on from form yet uh you you mentioned earlier song and and dance as well there is that there is that woven into milk maybe not as you say as as much as some of your other works but there are different language systems. I mean, there's 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 literal other language system with with um, traditional language, mm -hmm. and then there's dance or, or moments when, as you say, the characters find um, discover something through dance, and then also moments of song. What do you, with what you were trying to explore in this work, gain from those other mediums and forms? Um. I think I have a responsibility to introduce audiences to things, as you said, like traditional language, to dance as being central and, and, and crucial to our storytelling culture. Um, and I think that I'm in a unique position where I have those at my disposal um, to, to add to the drama and theatricality um, of a play. Um, and so I feel a great responsibility, but I also feel um, <laughs> a great relief that I have these things that I can draw on as well. Um, um, and I also think there's something so wonderful about just seeing bodies moving in a space. And I know you, you can't write that in a way and it, it's really you, you pass it over to a director and they're going to do what they want. But um, I like to 
And invitation is a word I use a lot, but I like to invite directors to consider different ways that black bodies can exist in the space um, and have them exist in the space in black ways as well. Mm. Um, so that's probably the biggest driving force behind that. Yeah, great. You mentioned earlier, I mean, what, one of the things that I found so wonderful about the piece and, and, and it not being my experience is this idea that sometimes um, we, we've seen in the past or, in, or in, in sometimes in new writing, when you're trying to write from a perspective or an experience that might not be the experience of the audience, uh, some people might shy away from the kind of the difficult debates or conversations within the communities that are being represented. You mentioned earlier this 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 experience of being fair-skinned. Uh, and again, without wanting to give away the, the whole piece, it, it does get dealt with mm. um, in Milk, uh, in the back end of the play. Uh, how, how was that for you to really put that wrestle on stage in front of, in front of whoever reads or, or watches this? It was the hardest part of the play to write. Mm. Um, and the one that I w was so grateful to have um, across a couple of developments, an incredible mob in the room who was so supportive because, you know, I've never um, been doubted for my heritage by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's only ever people who, who aren't of that background. And so it was so gratifying, um, encouraging and, and, and delightful to be in, in such a safe space. Um, but yeah, it's... It is a difficult conversation because um, yeah, you, you feel... Sorry, I'm just trying not to give away the rest of the play. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a difficult conversation because, um, in my experience, I said earlier, you, you're really constantly having to prove your existence. And um, the, the play grapples with that in the sense that, you know... Um, that you can know something and it can, you can exist on paper and you can have the facts, but you can still just constantly doubt yourself. Um, uh, and I, again, I wanted to invite people <laughs> to consider um, and, you know, an experience of what it is to be fair-skinned. Um, I have great privilege in that I look the way that I do, which means that I haven't suffered in the ways that my ancestors have and that my um, darker-skinned brothers and sisters do. Um, However, what, what us Tassie mob have really suffered is, is a grave loss of culture and connection um, and that kind of camaraderie that comes from being able to see someone like yourself down the street and, and, and connect in that way. Um, and that's something that we're never going to get back. Um, and I don't have any answers around it, but it, it's certainly something that, that I'm always thinking about. It's not your first play, but, but as you said earlier, it, it is quite uh, personal. How, how was that feeling of exposure in, in putting it into the world? Was it something you kind of came to terms with or was it confronting at all times of, of kind of bringing it into into being? Yeah, pretty confronting at all yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, writing character B and character A was comparatively easy. Um, yeah. Uh, and they came onto the page a lot faster. I think when you're writing a character who, who isn't me but is, is definitely representative of some of my experiences, um, you can kind of shy away from wanting to expose too much of yourself. Um, and I really had to land on how I felt about a lot of things. Um, some of the things that character B says and does in order to survive um, are things that, that, have, um, that I've had to grapple with in real life and, and respond to perhaps... Um, 
uh, with with less understanding than character C has uh, does in the play. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it it was difficult. Um, but again, being 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 in a in a supportive and safe environment is absolutely key to being able to explore that um, and get it to a point where. Um, you uh, you kind of remove that character from yourself and unleash mm. something else. Be able to step back and kind of see it from afar. I think is really important. And it sounds like the the sort of feedback loop as well with community was continuous in throughout the whole process. How did you how did you approach that that for better use of word consultation process? Was it was it purely driven by the artists who were who were making the work, or was it, were other people invited into to have conversation around it? Yeah, we had a pretty um, formal consultation process with Arnie Gay Doolan, who's a Palo woman um, um, based in Canberra, um, my auntie, and um, she's such a wealth of knowledge and, and it, we were so privileged to have her in the room um, and, and we'll have her in the room for rehearsals, um, which, is, which is really exciting. Um, but as I was saying earlier, it was crucial that we had these other experiences being fed in as well um, because it is a Palawa story but it is representative of, of, of Mob's experience um, and so many of us were able to share um, examples from our, from our family past where some of these things had happened and yeah. Let's open another can of worms, uh, gender, um, so much a can of worms but, but I'm interested to know um, with, with the gender uh, sort of identities or experiences of the of the characters, but also how you not just how you grappled with not just writing generational conversations, but but also ones from different gendered perspectives. Yeah, um, and this is this is not the first time I've had this question. So yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, but the um, I have had the real privilege of of growing up with strong Aboriginal women in my life. Um, it's been a um, a matrilineal lines, mm. we would say. Yeah. Um, and so those are my experiences of, of Aboriginality in my family. Um, my great-grandmother, she's almost 96, born wow. from this island, also my grandmother. Um, and I really wanted to um, pay tribute to their experiences that, um, you know, they um, have gone through a lot, but they've also experienced such joy um, and, and, and do revel in telling stories of, of the past, which is incredible for me. Um, and I guess the, the real reason, and this is probably giving away something in the play, but um, uh, the, young, the young man is expecting um, a baby who is a daughter. Um, and so he's wanting to kind of be able to, to connect her to her ancestors in that way, um, which is something that, that I thought was important in my real life as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you touched on something, uh, this idea of legacy in, in the work is, is so strong. Um, but, but also you then get a sense of how just continuing to tell the stories is, is as much legacy as, as sort of biological yeah. legacy <laughs> is. So it's a really, it's a really wonderful thing. Um, I was looking at some of your other works. I want to kind of take a step away from milk for a moment. Uh, I, I came across one white fella yellow tree. Is that pronounced right? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that work. 
Sure. Um, in terms of this land of intersections. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whitefella Yellow Tree is um, a place set kind of uh, at the dawn of colonisation um, under a lemon tree uh, where two young Aboriginal boys meet. Um, they're kind of charged with exchanging information from the respective mobs on, on the Whitefella's arrival. Um, they kind of strike up a bit of a, a friendship, tumultuous at, at first, um, but they eventually fall in love. Um, and it's a, a queer love story set against the backdrop of colonisation um, and it really tracks um, this kind of, um, this lovely thing that happens between two young people and then and then how they're kind of fractured the moment the colonisation starts to spread. Um, and I'm talking mainly about religion, uh, the int- introduction of, you know, morality around mm. sexuality and so on. Um, and, yeah, I was interested, I think I, I read something around the fact that um, in, in recorded history, white recorded history, um, we don't talk about the gender and sexual diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It doesn't exist as a, as a record, but it must have existed. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, it's something that, given my own personal experience, something that I really wanted to, um, to explore on stage. Mm. And look, and, 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 as, and as someone who's queer and, and is also very interested in queer theatre, it struck me because I started to get a real sense of just your sort of um, your courage in looking at various intersections uh, of, of experience, which is, which is kind of great, and getting a sense of what, you know, what your voice in the Australian stage uh, could amount and, and, and add up to be. I'm going to put you on the spot. Like, where, how do you feel about where new Australian writing is? right now <laughs> um, I think it's um, I think it can be very exciting <laughs> <laughs> go further <laughs> um, I, I think that we're and I don't think that that COVID has helped this um, but I think we're at a point where we could leap forward and take some more risks in the, in the things that we're willing to program and, and put on our stages um, but I think that there's a there's a protectiveness of, you know, I think the the system on which the marketing and selling of tickets and, and so on works doesn't favour exciting new Australian writing, which is a real shame, particularly black writing. Um, uh, and I don't know where it's going. I think that there are a lot of incredible new playwrights coming through. Um, um, Kirsty Marillier, I think, is incredible, mm. um, South, South African um, playwright. Um, and... I also think that we have this this issue in Australia where um, you're either new and emerging and exciting, or you're <laughs> Joanna Murray Smith and Patricia Cornelius, and, and you're at the height of your game. And there's this middle career um, playwright existence that we kind of ignore, um, and they're still contributing really exciting things to the national conversation. Um, and I'm not sure that we we provide enough support in that space. Um, in our search for for the next thing, mm. the next palatable thing, thing. Mm. and we, we, I mean, we really see that, don't we? In sort of what programs are offered to playwrights, mm-hmm. what what gets developed, yeah, and in some ways compounded by the pandemic. In a way, there's a certain mid-career mm-hmm. um, reality. Mm. What do you, you know, in terms of 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 getting more black writing to the stage? I mean, this is a this is a question that is not going to be answered today. <laughs> um, but what are some of the what are some of the things in your experience that that could speed up that process. That could actually have a that we could have a a sort of a, a canon of work on stage now that is actually reflective of the people in this country. Yeah. 
Um, I think about it um, a fair bit because um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I'm going to say it. I've I've received a lot of recognition for my work, but not a lot of productions. And I think that we mm. we are very happy to um, award the ideas of, of black writers, but we're not necessarily then putting our money where our mouth is and, and, and producing them. Um, and I think that's a real shame. Um, I think that we, we need black pays to be perfect before they go on, whereas other writers are allowed to kind of experiment and write a bit of a doozy and then yeah. just get up the next morning and do something else. Um, whereas... I feel this responsibility that whatever I write has to be great. Um, hopefully it is, mm. but, you know, it's, it's a big pressure. Um, and also I think we, could, we can develop ways that pitching your work and uh, having access to the people in those positions of power could be made more accessible um, to, to black writers as well. I think that... Um, for myself, starting out, I didn't know who I could go to and talk to. I didn't know what I needed to do. Um, I thought, do you just write a play and put it in the post? Or something? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, the steps aren't clear. Mm. Um, and if you're writing within community and for community, um, you're not necessarily mixing in the same circles. And so that jump can be pretty difficult, and it shouldn't be. Mm. It, absolutely. And it's so interesting because I think we're finding more and more that this idea of the audience is, is a myth. That, that there is, you know, hundreds or thousands of individuals who, you know, who, who come to a work and, and have s- such varied life experiences. I'm curious to know when, when you, you, you write a play, I mean, you, you've said, yes, writing for community but also writing for a, a broader audience. How, how much do you think about the audience experience of the play or do you sort of really try and s- stick into the, the world that you're creating? How, how much is that conscious to you that you're going to then have to, the play is going to be experienced live to an audience? Um, yeah, well, I feel as though, you know, just going into rehearsals very soon for mm. Milk, I'm probably starting to think about it now. Yeah. <laughs> um, during the writing process, I always think about my mum uh, and whether mm. she will enjoy it. Um, she's kind of my point of, of reference. Um, she hates intervals. So Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, we like your mum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I don't want to stand around yeah. and drink a Chardonnay with people I don't know. Um, so uh, it's not always conscious. But, uh, but again, I think with Milk it kind of was. Maybe not – I knew what I wanted it to do, but I wasn't necessarily thinking about the audience, inverted commas. Um, uh, but I think closer to something actually going in front of the audience um, – start to think about how it might be received and and so on um it's exhilarating and terrifying Mm. i i often wonder how how much playwrights write to the realities of the industry Mm. rather than to the realities of their writing Mm. i mean we we do see so much that people go i'm not going to write more than x amount of characters as a certain type of writer because the the work won't get on or i'm not going to write enormous scene changes or you know um are you conscious of that? Are you conscious as as a writer about the sometimes shackling realities of being produced? Um, no. Blissfully unaware, I think. Yeah. I, I have this kind of mindset where I write something and I might for a moment think, oh, that could be a bit hard. But I always say to myself, that's a director's problem. Apologies, Tina. No, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't like to be because I believe in the 
because I'm a child at heart. I believe in the magic of the theatre and it doesn't mm. really matter what I write. There'll be a way for someone to figure out a way to do it. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> I, I, but you do hear those things all the time, you know. Mm. Oh, you've got more than four characters. Mm, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> no, find a way. Yeah. yeah. Do you have that 20-person epic <laughs> pace burning away? Uh, probably not. I think I'm just lucky that my tendencies to write for smaller casts but one day yeah one day and as a as i mean you mentioned briefly about this earlier but but what excites you as a as a audience member going to the theater what kind of experience turns you on um i don't i don't want to see i want to see real life represented in in mm. in a surprising and interesting way um i want to laugh and um, um, be convinced that everything's okay until it's not. I'm pretty miserable, <laughs> um, and I I really and oh, it's probably tried and everyone says it, but you know I want to be challenged in some way. Um, I believe in entertainment for entertainment's sake. That's totally fine, but still within that, there's an mm. opportunity to provoke some kind of reflection in an audience. Um, and I think that if a, if, if a writer or a creative team can do something like that, then they've done a good job. Yeah, totally. Um, and and your relationship with writing is it a is it a always positive relationship? <laughs> is it a love? Is it a destructive relationship? Um, it's uh, see, I'm I just really love it. But I have to be in the right kind of frame of mind. Um, you know, I sat with the idea for Milk for several years before I even put mm. pen to paper. And the same with White Valley Tree that you mentioned earlier. I've been thinking about that for two or three years before I finally um, wrote it this year for something. Um, and it's it's just a, a relaxing... You talked about spirituality before. Mm. It feels quite spiritual to me. As I said, I feel like I'm just telling stories that have already been told <laughs> um, at some point. Um, <clears throat> it's acting that I think I have a <laughs> destructive relationship with because I eat too much fried chicken. My heart can't cope with like going out on yeah. stage anymore. <laughs> um, uh, and writing is a, is a bit of a sanctuary from, from the anxiety of doing that, I think. Mm. <laughs> writing and fried chicken. Yes. Yeah, great. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, I don't want to sort of over-sentimentalise this question, but if you, you know, to, to go back to milk for a moment, if there was if there was one thing you really wanted people to take from, from it, and, and not that everyone will take the same thing, <clears throat> what, what would that be for you? I think it would be... Probably that um, we're still here in, in the Palawa context. That you know, until the seventies, there was this pervasive idea that that we were extinct, um, which is so awful to think about. It was so recent, um, and I want the play to contribute to the body of work that that is that is saying that. So if they can walk away with that, great. Beautiful. Beautiful point to finish as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Staging the Nation. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Stage in the Nation is a production of Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta, produced and recorded at Riverside Theatre's Parramatta. Executive producer, Joanne Key. Producer and technical director, Daniel Holsworth. Composition, Mealy Hay. Associate producer, Kara Woods. Host, Dino Dimitriadis. Thank you to the Australia Council's Resilience Fund and also City of Parramatta, Create New South Wales and Riverside Theatres. And of course, thank you to you all for listening.